in this great story around the person of Joseph. Uh, we're going to see what is really a long narrative. We're going to look at, over the, at this over the next two weeks, uh, thinking through um, what is going on here. It's a story that is not just about Joseph, but about the God who is behind him throughout it all. It's a, it's a time I'm really looking forward to looking together with you. So why don't we pray together that God would help us this morning uh, to come to this word and see him. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather together today, we are so thankful that you speak to us in your word. That by your spirit, we have access to what you want us to know about history. We give you thanks for the way you have acted in the life of Joseph and the way you've acted in the life of your son. And pray that today you might draw us in to see the world through your eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment an army recruitment drive. It's a recruitment drive to pull in new recruits towards uh, an army kind of force that's happening, but it's during wartime. And I want you to imagine that this is how the recruitment drive went. Come and join the army. Free travel. Uh, Free food. You'll meet exotic people. Travel to exotic locations. Experience other cultures. Uh, You'll have great training, a comprehensive health plan, or clothing, housing, and bedding will be provided. Now, what a wonderful job that is. Who doesn't want to sign up for a job like that? But the problem is, if that's during wartime, that's an incredibly distorted picture of the job, isn't it? If you were given no other information, nothing about the boot camp that you'd have to enter into, about the sergeants yelling at you, telling you to crawl on your knees and keep going like scum. Uh, What about the, the enemy? firing at you with real bullets. The high likelihood of being wounded, death, or worse, being taken prisoner of war. The world that we live in today cries at the top of its lungs that life is about happiness and pleasure. Come and join life lived to the full. When it comes to reality, it delivers something far, far from that promise. Sickness, injustice, inequality, broken relationships, broken homes, broken dreams. With just enough happiness sprinkled throughout life to keep us believing the lie that life really is about happiness and blessing. Question is, have you been sold a half-truth? Have you been sold a lie about life or even about Christianity? I want to put it to you today that the only way to live life with any hint of true fulfillment is to recognize we are at war. We are at war. We're at war with ourselves, with the world around us, and with our God. But what we'll see today is that there is a captain who will lead us through and secure peace that every single one of us desires peace from our own brokenness peace from the brokenness of the world around us and peace between us and the god that we've made our enemy as we get to the next section in the book of genesis uh, we meet a man living the blessed life i'm sorry there's no outline in there it's a bit late this week so i'll put them on the screen point number one the blessed life or hashtag blessed That's what we do when we meet this man called Joseph. He's Jacob's son, and he has got it made. If anyone can carry the title hashtag blessed, it's him. 
His dad loves him more than any of his other brothers. His dad loves him more than life itself. His brothers do the majority of the work in the household, and that's exactly what you want, isn't it? Especially as a, as a younger brother, you want the oldest to be able to do that for you. He gets showered with gifts from his dad, including a coat that some say has many, many colors on it. Uh, and I'm sure what was written across the back of that coat, if you look carefully, were these words. Hashtag blessed. That's what he would have had on it. He's the original millennial. He loves it all. Life's about him. And he wants to soak it up and live it out. His brothers hate him. And you can understand why. The first thing that we hear in the passage is that he goes to his dad and passes on a bad report about his brothers. Now, nearly every time that that word bad report is used, it always has connotations of being an untrue report. He passed on a bad report, bad in what he said, but also it wasn't true. It wasn't a true report. He was dodging on his brothers. Look at what happens in verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. And you kind of get it, don't you? He's a stuck-up, arrogant little brother, right? And you're like, oh, I'm so annoyed by him. And if that wasn't enough, he's a dreamer as well. He has these dreams that talk about his life and his plans, and he can't shut up about them. He's got to tell everyone how great his life is going to be. First dream, he sees all these 11 sheaves of corn, which are obviously about his brothers, because there's 12 of them. And they're all bowing down, these sheaves, to him. And so he feels the need to go and tell his brothers how important this is and that will be the future. Hashtag blessed. This life is great. Second dream. He has another dream where the sun, the moon, and the stars all bow down to him. And we're supposed to feel like, what, who is this guy? What an arrogant little jerk. I mean, really. And the idea of the sun and the moon bowing down is saying that his mum and dad will bow down to him as well. Does he not know who his mum and dad are? That this is Jacob, the one who will be Israel, the leader of God's people, that he will bow down to Joseph. You don't need an exotic dream manual to work out the interpretation of these dreams. Verse 37, 5. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And there's a sense at which, at this point in the passage, I've got to be honest. I hate Joseph too. Like, who is this little... Ah, I want to say what I think. He's some sort of self-seeking, arrogant, spoilt little brat. But he's about to find out that the world isn't as rosy as his so far hashtag blessed life has pointed out. He's not living in a time of peace. He's living at war. He's... Self-service, his lying report about his brothers, his arrogance places him at war with himself, trying to grasp at what he wants to get. At war with his brothers who hate him, little twerp. And at war with his God who he's sinned against, who he's lied to. Joseph's life at this point is marred by sin. And so we get to point two, sin provokes sin. Sin provokes sin. Joseph's brothers were out pasturing the flocks near Shechem. Now, when we hear that word Shechem, it should ring bells for us. The last we heard of it was hopefully in Connect Groups last week as you looked at that passage and you saw the massacre of the brothers who went out and took out a whole village near Shechem. 
It's no wonder that Jacob kept his prized boy back from spending too much time with his sheep near that town. There are people there that hate his family. The family have become distasteful to that whole region, but they are still pastoring their flocks near Shechem. But now Jacob sends out Joseph to check out how the brothers are getting on and to come back quickly. Just find out a report. Are they okay? Is everything doing all right? So Joseph, Jacob's prized son, sets out with his multicolored coat. Hashtag blessed. Loving life. You kind of see him march along, not a worry in the world. Life is good. It's how it's supposed to be. But then we find out that for three verses, he gets lost. There's this tension for us all in the text. We're like, the narrator is showing us what will happen to Joseph. What will happen? Will he kind of fall prey to Shechem? Will he be drawn in by the atrocities of the world? We hope not. Ironically, the camera scene shifts to the brothers and they see this multicolored coat type figure walking towards them. It doesn't take them long to realize because they can see the words clear as a bell written all over his face. Hashtag blessed. Joseph's made his way to his family safe and sound. But safe and sound is not how it would continue. Here comes this dreamer. Here he is now. It's ironic that the very coat his dad gave him to set him apart has now given the brothers time to plot his death. They quickly come to a conclusion before he even reaches their camp. And the conclusion is amazing. Their hatred is so deep that they only want one thing, death. That is what is on the brother's mind. No euphemisms, no deliberation. What should we do? They're just like, let's kill him. They're like, yes. It's a decided and calculated plan put together in minutes, death. It makes me wonder, where are you tempted to let your frustration and jealousy of others take over your reason and rationality and love? It got me thinking, who is it that drives me to anger? And I've got to be honest, sometimes I see people living the blessed life. Everything just goes so well for them. I want to take the tall poppy down. I'm like, no, it annoys me. I get angry. I want to prove to them that there's something not right in their life. And I kind of start plotting to help them understand that. I'd never plot to see them die, of course. Who is it for you? Maybe those with different ideas and norms than you. Maybe those who just won't shut up. (laughs) Maybe it's me. Maybe you're frustrated at the guy up the front all the time. He just keeps talking like Joseph does here. We all know people who in some way, shape or form touch our raw nerves. And while we might not kill the person, we certainly kill the friendship, don't we? We act to distance ourselves. We let our rage and envy and jealousy take over. Just like Joseph's brothers. In this whole plot, you've got Reuben as the one brother who seems a little different. He acts as a voice of reason, planning to kind of free Joseph later. And he suggests to the brothers before Joseph arrives, let's throw him in a pit rather than kill him. So generous. Let's throw him in a pit and leave him there. But what he's trying to do is to kind of then give time to come back and pick him up. He's trying to get a way out. Genesis 37 verse 23. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off his robe, the robe of many colors that he had on, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. But then Judah has an even better plan. Another brother, Judah. Instead of just killing a brother, 
this, this kid who's made such life so hard for us, instead of just killing him and getting rid of him, let's make money off him as well. Like, what a genius plan. We can actually sell him to some slave traders, make some cash, and get rid of the problem. This is entrepreneurialism at its best. Right? How brilliant is this? Verse 28. When the Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph to Egypt. Now, at this point, Reuben returns. Where has he been? And you're like, why was not Reuben there? You kind of see this situation unfold before you, then you find out Reuben wasn't there. He would have spoken up. His plan was to put him in a pit and then pull him out later. And as a reader, you ask, why would God allow that? The one brother that was for him is somehow not there when this whole thing goes on. Why, God? And I'm sure all of us have been in situations in life where we wish we were there or we weren't there. And we ask God, why have you done this? Why have you not allowed the one person that was for me to be here at that moment, at that time? Why did not someone speak out? Why did not something happen? And we feel frustration about the way things work and ask, where are you, God? Reuben's distraught. But finally, it doesn't take him very long until he joins forces with his brothers and hatches a plan to cover their tracks. He's now implicit in this whole thing. So they kill a goat, they dip Joseph's robe in blood. Hashtag blessed. We'll see what this dreamer thinks of us now. They take it back to their dad, feigning grief, a bit richer, thankful that their dreamer brother is gone, thinking to themselves, who's living the blessed life now? It's us. Now, this whole narrative, we're supposed to be shocked. We're supposed to be sitting here thinking, what is going on? Shocked at the state of the world, at the state of this family? I mean, this is supposed to be the family through whom all nations will be blessed. This is supposed to be the family who is going to live their life as a model to the rest of the world to show what it is like to live as the people saved by the true and living God. But look at them. It's horrible. It's shocking. There's this picture of humanity here that's ugly, ugly as can be. I mean, imagine the funeral for a moment. I don't know if you've been uh, to a funeral recently, but imagine you're there at the funeral, the deception from the brothers. They get up and, and speak. Oh, my brother, he was such, such an ideas man. You know, he had so many ideas and it's so sad that he's gone and we're going to miss him. And they kind of put the, 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 the casket in the ground and they stand back as, as the dad is sobbing all the while knowing <laughs> we got some money for him. It was us. Joseph's dad, Jacob, is hysterical. He won't be consoled. The picture of him is one of kind of almost overreaction. His prized son is gone and you're asking why. He's so upset that he says he will mourn until the day he dies, until the day he goes down to Sheol. Jacob's view of the blessed life has come crumbling down. He cannot control his blessing that God had given him. He cannot direct the blessing of God. He cannot direct the plans of God. He wanted his son Joseph to be the one, the special one. And now Joseph is gone. For Jacob, Joseph and all the brothers, and we'll see soon everyone in this whole story, you cannot control the blessing of God. God works in his ways to bring about his purposes in his time. 
We have not one ounce of say over the direction of God's will, nor how things will turn out. Not on our own. We cannot bring in the promises of God for ourselves in the way that we want. And what we're left with is a life, is, is a world that's at war, that's broken. A family that's fractured. Relationships that are deeply torn apart. Whose only hope as a family seems to be a distant mirage at this point in time. But do you notice as you hear the family likeness of Jacob and sons, that these are a people not dissimilar to us. They're a people driven by fear and jealousy. And deep down, you and I know that is what drives us so often. People driven by self-serving motives. There's a realness to this story, a realness of the human condition of what you and I are actually like. And there's a temptation for us as we come along and see this story and look at Joseph and go, look at him. He's a chip off the old block. Look at the family. They're a chip off the old block. Their dad, Jacob, his name was Deceiver, Grasper. And they've turned out just like their dad. Our world today cries out that we are products of our parents. That our parents have set our direction and that there is nothing we can do to change our destiny. We must give in to who we are. The saying is true. Sin provokes sin. And in this story, no one by their own effort can escape this sin. However, it will be a mistake to think that that was the whole story. See, it's clear throughout Scripture that we are not simply the products of those who precede us. We are not caught captive to our family. We are responsible human beings. You and I, we make real choices. Real choices. Our sin is our sin. Our reactions are our reactions. Our conduct is our conduct. I find myself so often in parenting saying to my kids, no, you are in control of your reactions. They're like, no, but he looked at me, so I had to punch him. I'm like, no, you didn't. You could have just not punched him and come and told me and we would have sorted it out. How often do you do that? Oh, they said something nasty. Oh, they provoked me. And so we justify our sin. We justify putting ourselves before God. Our choices are our choices. We are responsible. Never put it on anyone else. We are responsible for how we react to every single person, situation in our life. We must not blame others. We must not shift the responsibility to those who annoyed us. You know it and I know it. We all choose to sin. All of us. But we also know there is a God who is in control behind everything that's happening in this story. The story makes it more and more clear as we keep going through. There is a God who formed this family called Israel, who has a plan and a purpose. At this moment, it's hard to see this family coming to anything at all. It looks like this is over. (laughs) These guys are gone. But God keeps his promises. He's a God who looks to form order out of chaos. He's a God who spoke into the darkness and formed light. He's a God who is in control of all. And for this reason and this reason alone, this family without a human hope in the world is a family with real hope. For they have the real God. We must not forget 
that while we are broken and while we make decisions to sin often, we are also objects of God's mercy, of God not giving us what we really do deserve. And we're about to see that happen in this story in a very clear way. Our lives are not simply shaped by the past, but by the God who knows the future. He has a plan and he is bringing you and I there. More than knowing the future, he determines it. And his purposes are for us. He alone is our future and our hope. Well, chapter 38 comes along and takes a slight detour that you'll look at in connect groups uh, this week. Uh, So have a look at that. Uh, Basically, it's just horrible everywhere, except for the one thing that God does seem to raise up a child through horrible circumstances to keep his promise through Abraham to have a descendant that comes through the line of Judah. That's the key thing you'll see as you look through um, chapter 38. But then the scene comes back in chapter 39 and we see point number three, not all things are as they seem. Not all things are as they seem. When it seems all hopes are lost for Joseph. God, through this extraordinary chain of events, so orders everything that his plans and purposes come to fruition. Stand back and watch. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor in his master's sight and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptians. He blessed the Egyptians' house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. What a turn of events. At the moment that you think Joseph's life is gone to custard, I mean, we know the story, but just stop and think for a minute. He's rescued out of that by the God who pulls him into the hands of the second most powerful man in all of Egypt and becomes the kind of third most powerful man in all of Egypt. (laughs) This is a God who is in control of everything. There's no supernatural amazing moments where the, the Egyptian guard gets thrown against the wall and God's supernatural power comes in. God is just in control of everything. 